kids don't know they can't get better. They don't know that it's okay to be uncomfortable. Like it is okay to be uncomfortable when you're learning. And they're just so believing that change is possible. Hope is boundless with them. And so I just love that. And I love showing family solutions. That's really what has driven my work. But what has happened in this 30 years is a startling increase in anxiety and stress that I could not have predicted 30 years ago. I thought with all the advances that were occurring, what we know about the brain, what we know about what calms the brain, how we can bring health into our life, both physical and mental health. I thought we would be better off with our mental health. Instead, we're at a crisis state. We were at a crisis state even before the pandemic happened, which is why in January of 2020, I started the Global Institute of Children's Mental Health. And here we are in 2022, and it's, pretty bad out there. I mean, I said before, it's a shit show. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. When I was first pulling together the different themes that we were going to examine over the course of our first six to nine months of the Impact podcast, I wasn't sure how I wanted to fit kids into the conversation. I recognize that not everyone in our audience has children. Not everyone identifies as a parent. Not everyone is young children. We're all at different phases of our lives. But here's why I decided to include it, not as one-off episodes, but as a series, is because I'm probably biased as a parent. I really believe that collectively as a society, we have a responsibility to acknowledge where children are at. I sat with my husband who himself is trained in pediatrics, trained as a traditional medical doctor and and myself obviously as an naturopathic doctor. And we were sitting a few evenings ago uh, watching TV and uh, we were watching Dear Evan Hansen and there was this scene, we'd seen the play, we knew the story, but there's a scene where these two characters are walking through, Evan and this other character are walking through the park And what they are, where they are finding common ground as teenagers is in comparison of the medications they are taking to cope with their stress. There was medications for anxiety. There were medications for depression. There were medications to manage focus. And while we both cognitively knew that this was the reality for so many kids, It struck us both in that moment. We looked at each other just so sad and stuck in the severity of the situation, the normalization of this situation. I called to attention in this interview that I'm about to share with all of you today, this idea that we are are normalizing a mental health crisis. And as part of that, as part of that journey to normalization, We as adults frequently take a stance. Well, I did this when I was a kid and I was okay. And I'm going to take a stance against that statement. I'm going to take a stance against it for a few different reasons. One, our kids today, and I mean our kids as a society, our kids are facing things that they have never had to face before. They are facing the pandemic without all of the lifelong tools and opportunities that we have faced and had access to as adults. But they are also facing unprecedented levels of pressure on social media and in school with increasingly diminished resources. This is something we all need to be aware of. These kids are the ones who are going to be making decisions on our behalf as we age. We need to ensure that we support them so that they become the best versions of themselves. This idea that while we did it, we were fine is rooted in a lack of acknowledgement towards this idea that we are in fact not okay. 30 to 40% of adults themselves are medicating to manage their own mental health. And while yes, there can be discrepancies in brain biochemistry and moments where that medication is required, in my clinical experience, that is the rarity, not the norm. We don't provide ourselves with tools. We don't set ourselves up for success. We normalize evening wine when we should be normalizing access to other types of tools and the need for daily acknowledgement and recovery from our own mental health needs. 
Now, I am not meaning for this introduction to turn into a diatribe. We have all heard this before. We have a mental health crisis on our hands, but somehow that mental health crisis is always for somebody else. And what I'm pointing out today is it's actually related to all of us. All of us have a need to support our mental health, just like all of us need to have a need to support our cardiovascular system or to eat vegetables. It's part of day-to-day life. And none of us have been immune to the stress that has occurred in the globe and is continuing around the world today. And so my guest today, Dr. Roseanne Kapanahad, she and I, we've just solved all the world's problems in this particular interview. We've taken a heavy topic and we've made it light and fun. In fact, that is kind of the only way Dr. Roe shows up. Dr. Roseanne is a mental health trailblazer, founder of the Global Institute of Children's Mental Health, and Dr. Roseanne and Associates. She is changing the way we view and treat children's mental health. Forbes magazine called her a thought leader in children's mental health. Her work has helped thousands reverse the most challenging conditions such as ADHD, anxiety, mood, autism, learning disabilities, Lyme, PANS, PANDAS, and she does it using proven holistic therapies such as neurofeedback, biofeedback, and psychotherapy. She is a renowned author, an accomplished clinician, and just so much fun to talk to. This interview is for all of us, and I'm so excited for you to meet Dr. Roseanne Kapanahodge. Dr. Roseanne Kapanahodge, welcome to the Impact Podcast. Well, I'm so excited to spend time with you, Dr. Megan. I think you are an amazing human being in so many ways, so I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, I, I finally just said to us before we got started, we just need to hit start because we are already like deep in it. Uh, and I feel like people have missed out on some solid gold. But I, you know, I invited I invited you to have this conversation because I, I want I want to talk about kids and I want to talk about kids mental health. And I want to talk about solutions for where kids are at that we can hand back to parents. And one of the elements of the conversation we were having uh, before I hit record is how we have inadvertently outsourced this to to professionals, to schools, to to anybody um, but ourselves. And I and I don't think it's because we we don't want to deal with it. I think it's because we don't know how to deal with it as parents. And so I can't think of anyone better to facilitate this conversation than you. And before we jump into it, can you just share with my audience? A little bit about your story. Why is this the work that you are doing in the world and why are you so passionate about it? Yeah. I mean, there's so many reasons why I do this work and, you know, really, how did I even decide that I wanted to be, you know, a psychologist, a therapist and really trying to change mental health? It actually started when I was five. I was asked by my mother's friend, Angela, what I wanted to be. And out of my mouth came, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And then along the way, I realized that's somebody who does medication. And I really wanted to help people through through talking and making, helping them make behavioral changes. And I really fell in love working with kids. Kids don't know they can't get better. They don't know that it's okay to be uncomfortable. Like, it is okay to be uncomfortable when you're learning. And they're just so believing that change is possible. Hope is boundless with them. And so I just love that. And I love showing family solutions. That's really what has driven my work. But what has happened in this 30 years is a startling increase in anxiety and stress that I could not have predicted 30 years ago. I thought, with all the advances that were occurring, what we know about the brain, what we know about what calms the brain, how we can bring health into our life, both physical and mental health. I thought we would be better off with our mental health. Instead, we're at a crisis state. We were at a crisis state even before the pandemic happened, which is why in January of 2020, I started the Global Institute of Children's Mental Health. And here we are in 2022, and it's pretty bad out there. I mean, I said before, it's a shit show. And I agree with you. I think parents don't want to outsource. They don't know what else to do. And that's why I'm excited for this conversation, because that's all I do is talk about solutions. And parents should be the CEO of their kids' physical and mental health. And we shouldn't outsource it. When you say crisis state, this is is a term that uh, I think we're all familiar with. It's it's on the news every day. It is in our feeds. 
but I actually feel like even I am, I like not being a mental health professional, when you say crisis state, what does that look like in your office? Well, I'm getting people who very positively seeking mental health for the first time, but you know, and trying to get help right away. But I am seeing way more complex cases, you know, suicide attempts of, you know, kids that on the surface seem like they're doing really well, like no history of issues, high performing students, straight A students, great athletes. Um, and this is just echoed, Megan, with what we're seeing on, on the outside. So rates of suicide, thoughts of suicide, anxiety, depression, OCD, and ADHD are the highest they've ever been. And family stress, about 70% of families report a dramatic increase in stress due to the pandemic. No surprise, that's according to the Stress in America survey by the American Psychological Association. So what I'm seeing is people starting to see difficulties in the pandemic, and some people take charge and really get in there and don't wait for a crisis, but that's not the norm. What I'm seeing is, oh my gosh, the signs of stress were there, difficulty sleeping, change in behavior, lots of gastrointestinal stuff, not eating or overeating, tearfulness, avoidance. They're seeing little signs, but because the child is keeping up with academics, they sort of dismiss it. There's an incongruence because they're like, well, the school would be calling me or, oh, they'd be failing. That's not what mental health looks like. Mental health isn't falling apart. That's a crisis. <laughs> and so I'm just getting people in a, where it's sort of like driving up the one-way road. You're like, how does somebody do that? Well, in your brain, you say, I couldn't have dro- driven up here. That can't be. And you sort of you know, ignore the signs. And, and, and it's a subconscious thing. Nobody's doing this on purpose. And you might ask your kid, are you depressed? And your kid says no. Well, they might not even understand what they're feeling. They don't know what that means. They don't know what it means. Yeah. And they think yeah. well, they're a straight A student. But if you're not a family like you know, my family, we, we don't just talk about emotions and feelings. It's just a regular conversation. It's a part of it. We talk about body sensations. Ooh, how does that make you feel inside your chest? You know, ooh, where do you feel it in your body? And we normalize it, right? And what is happening is these families are coming in and I'm seeing a dramatic increase in school refusal. I have never, it's 50% of my cases are kids that have broken down so much that they can't put one foot in front of the other and get out the door. You know, that is what is what I am seeing. What I specialize in is complex cases. Boy, do I love when cases, you know, moms come in and they're like, I'm noticing that they're, you know, got the gastrointestinal only Sunday to Thursday. (laughs) Oh, that's a thing? Oh, yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) So, you know, when your kid, I remember many years ago, I had somebody who the kid was a straight A student. What a great kid. He's a total adult and he's a wonderful human being. And his mom said, listen, I've gone to every gastrointestinal. Somebody said, just go to Dr. Rouse. She'll figure it out. He vomited for six or seven years, Sunday to Thursday, right? It didn't happen on the weekend. And she was like, I think it might be stress. And she's like, somebody said, let's try this neurofeedback. In two sessions, it stopped. You know what I mean? And she was like, I didn't realize how much of an internalizer he was because he looks so good on the outside. So she was, she took charge of it. It opened up these beautiful conversations about how to manage stress. He was a more sensitive kid. And I think that's the other part of this, Megan. We think we're immune to stress, right? So I feed my kid organic food. I, you know, I am uh, living in a nice house. Uh, I send my kids to private school. They have nice friends. How could they be stressed? This is what conversations I have every day. We are not immune. Even just the osmosis of everybody else being in crisis and being in that room with other people who are like, oh, I'm on my Zoloft and, you know, oh, I had to go to my therapist because I'm cutting. We're not judging that. There's a lot to take in, especially if your kid is an empath, right? So we're living in a world where the pulse is intense. And it doesn't matter what country you're living in, like Europe used to be sort of its own place and didn't experience this at the same level as the United States did. They're not too far behind. They experience very high levels. And, you know, our hospital system is just filled with kids who are in crisis. And we need to back up 
and teach people the signs and what to do about it. We have this obsession, it would appear, as a society where it's like it's what's on the outside that that counts. Like even even the way we acquire media and information, it is visually oriented. It's not like we joke all the time in our company, we're like, people don't read anymore. Like we can't get anyone to read an email. We get a million questions because it's like it's it's only what we it's only what we see. And so I hear what you're saying because we've got this obsession with what the outer looks like. And if that's where we stop, everything looks okay. How do we really just delve into that conversation? And in the context for this, I have a I have an almost eleven year old, and we were playing we were playing frisbee at the park the other day, and she she's very athletic, and she dropped the disc. I don't know what we're doing. she dropped the disc. She was so angry about it, like the disproportionate level of emotion to dropping the frisbee in the park. I was like Naya, just like let it go, and she was like this poor kid was so angry, and it was I mean. I know enough to know that it wasn't about the frisbee, but I did what you just talked about. I'm like, we live in a nice neighborhood and we've got nice, we've got nice friends and you've got nice friends. And you're like, you're, you're super smart. Like I went through the list of like assets, which are irrelevant Irrelevant. to her feelings. Right. And then like, she didn't, she didn't want to talk to me about it. She was like, I don't want to talk to you about it, which I'm like, okay, how do we, how do we, how do we get them to talk to us? Yeah. Because I think a lot of parents would be like, Okay, fine. Guess she's fine. She doesn't want to talk to me about it. What can I do? Well, you know, first of all, thank you for sharing that story because I think that's a really common thing that happens, right? We are in a world of fake book and Instagram where everything has to look a certain way and there's filters for everything and all this other stuff. And our kids have a tremendous amount of pressure on them, even when parents don't put pressure on their kids the environment that they're going to most schools, whether it's private or public, unless you're really going to a different kind of school, which, which we, the Hodges choose to do, they're going to get the, the, the pressure of the other kids to, you have to get into a good college. And we say that if you don't get into a good college, there's not, you're not going to be anything. I, I don't believe in that. And that's a whole conversation in itself, but that is a driving factor with these kids. They're shortchanging sleep. They're doing all that. And it starts putting pressure in grade school. So when you have a kid who wants to please, wants to do well, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but anything in life has to have balance. So when you see that your size of your problem, you can't see me, but I'm showing you an ant and your reaction is an elephant. And, you know, if it's a one-off, it still deserves a conversation. If it's a pattern, oh, this needs lots of conversations. So number one, when a kid, if you're not having regular conversations about how to deal with stressors, and we'll get into that, you're not going to jump into a hot situation, right? Their answer is, I want to you know what I mean? They're going to give you this, you know, you don't understand. Yeah. You have a teenager, you might get an F you with it, you know, all those things, right? I have an 11 year old and a 17 year old. Like, girls are, have their own path of how they um, learn, have maturity. Boys have a steep improvement at about 15 and a half. Thank you, Jesus. But, <laughs> but what happens is in that situation, a lot of times we lean in with words, right? And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that isn't how our kids think. They are, as you said, with adults, visual and kinesthetic, right? So if you are outside of the situation, what I would do is like, hey, you know, I see you got really frustrated really easily. When's the last time that's happened to you? And, you know, depending on what kind of relationship, you might get a push-off statement you know, start being a detective and look at your child and be like, wow, they really have a low frustration tolerance. You know, I talk about a resiliency mindset. We want to be resilient. I'm a very stress resilient person because a lot of reasons, but it's a lot of daily work. It's an evolutionary process. And, you know, resiliency comes from your mindset of how you view, manage, and recover from stress, right? The best people in terms of how they manage stress is how they view it. So if you don't even view things as a stressor in the same way, like, okay, this was icky and I'm sure there's a lesson in here. Let me, let me process it and move on. You know, we know that there's better life outcomes. Your mental health is better. This is all through research. So why is this relevant? 
We need to use those micro opportunities of everyday stressors. And we want our kids to have stressors, people. We are band-aiding the crap out of them. Say that one more time. <laughs> we want our time. kids. I call this bubble wrap parenting. We are bubble wrapping our kids. And we are not allowing them to tolerate uncomfortableness. And when you learn to be uncomfortable, little bits of uncomfortableness is how your kids self-regulate. They're like, ooh, that person, um, somebody told me a lie yesterday. And I always tell everybody, I don't even know why people try to lie to me. Like I was actually went to a training by a secret service agent. I know all this stuff. I can tell where you're accessing information in your brain when you're talking to me, all kinds of things. And I, you know, I usually don't, I just go, okay, this person's lying to me. It is what it is. And I file it away and I just make sure that I realize this isn't what it is. And so, you know, when, you know, we are stressed, when we are, you know, struggling, and I, I viewed that situation differently, but you, you have to learn to moderate that uncomfortableness. You have to learn how, wow, that person lied to me yesterday. I got a pit in, in the stomach, right? I recognized it and it was an uncomfortable emotion and I can process it and move on by it. I don't have to explode. That took a lifetime. And I'm very fortunate. I'm the daughter of Italian immigrants and my parents were like, there is no limit to what you can do. Speak your truth. Don't feel like you can't say something to somebody because it's going to make them uncomfortable. And don't do anything you don't want to do. My parents were like, oh, don't do anything you don't want to do. And it was awesome because here I was, if you can imagine a little Roseanne, Megan. This is how I I'm, I'm imagining right now. In <laughs> <laughs> three, I would be like, I don't think so, right? But when our kids get in touch with those feelings, they're able to do things. When I went to college and, you know, somebody was inappropriate to me, Megan, a boy, you know, in uncomfortable situations, I was like, red alert. I could recognize uncomfortableness because not everything made me uncomfortable. So we have to have those micro opportunities to learn how to tolerate it. So your kids shouldn't overreact, but they should react strongly when it's appropriate. The problem is our kids are like, I can't believe this. I'm not on the varsity team. Okay. Did you do the work? Is there an expectation? So how does this prepare you to deal with life? It teaches you to have normal expectations. It teaches you to recognize stressors. It teaches you to be a good decision maker when your parents are not around. And let me tell you, we want our kids to be thinkers and decision makers when we're not around. And in that moment with your daughter, absolutely, that's what most people do. You're like, where the hell did that come from? You know? But we don't know where that came from. We don't know if it's inadequacy, how she's feeling. We don't know if three days before some little snot bad girl said something to her at recess. You know, we don't know where it came from. But when you're opening up those doors, you're having the conversations. And I like to say things like, how could you have handled that differently? There's no shame in that. We never want to shame. We never want to blame. We want our kids to think about how they can cope, how they can problem solve with that situation. And that is really that key to mental health is building the resiliency through coping and letting them mess up. And it's painful to watch your kids mess up, but they need it. It is so painful. I watched my eight-year-old a few weeks ago in a swim meet. She was anchoring the race for the relay and she missed the wall on her turn. And like, you could just like feel her devastation afterwards, like letting her team down and, and I felt it. I was so hard, but I was also like, this, this is like one, this is a moment. Like this moment is going to, you're like, you're throwing this in your arsenal more than that gold medal. So I get it. These things, it's hard for us. It's hard for us too, but I'm obsessed with this notion of, uh, of resilience. And and part of it is one of the things I hear from parents, and then we're going to get back to the influence of the pandemic. But one of the things I hear from parents is I did that when I was a kid and we are fine. And I, I called that out a little while ago because I was like, guys, I don't think we're fine. Like, I think 30% of you are on antidepressants and medicated to get through the day. Like, can we please 
can we just maybe have a working definition of fine? I actually think we all have the inherent capacity to feel way better than we do. This resilience piece, I, I see this in the, I see it in the clinicians I work with. I see it in in my friends. I see it in my kids. Like I feel like if we can master resilience, we can master just about anything. Amen. Question here. I just needed to throw. I needed to like. I need to throw that on the table. That this is like a foundational piece of this conversation that we all need to increase this. And resiliency isn't a, isn't something you just get. It's something you build. Yeah, you're not born with it. You're not born. Some people are glass half full temperament. Yeah. You are, you are glass half full. I am a glass half full. Yeah. So am I. Yeah. (laughs) And I have two boys. One's a glass half empty and one's a glass half full. Right. Right. And the glass half full is a thousand times easier to parent. Yeah. And his older brother, I remember John Carlos, a younger one, he would be giving advice. He could barely speak to his older brother about how to manage something. And I was like, well, they're both getting it. You know, and it took a lot longer for Max to absorb it. And he is, you know, he has chronic Lyme and pans and stuff, and he's doing great. And when it all started to come together, I was like, oh, thank God my husband and I like tag team it and we did it. Nobody's immune from this. Okay. And it takes work. So the temperament is a part of it, but you can learn to become a glass half full. And you bring up the point that people have their own stuff. And, you know, it's so fascinating when Clubhouse came out, it was like really hot. And in the very, very beginning, of course, I was right there. And I was listening to it. And you were listening to these very famous people, big entrepreneurs. And what were they talking about? Mental health and stress. And, you know, if you don't have mental health, If you don't have confidence in yourself, you have nothing, Mm -hmm. nothing. It doesn't matter if you have a Tesla in a five bedroom house. It doesn't matter because that inner voice, uh, you know, of course, you know, I'm in this mastermind and I was actually in shock that the first time I went to the mastermind, that the first day was all about belief in yourself. And belief that you could earn the money and that belief that you d- you deserve to be there. I literally was like, ah, these are a bunch of physicians. <laughs> like, it was shocking to me. And I know that I have a gift that my parents were like, you can do anything. You can be anything. You got to work. And I just didn't know that there was a limit on things, right? I, I knew when I went into college and people would make, um, you know, statements that were totally like, oh, a woman can't do that. Or they'd come to my house and say, what does your husband do? That's my favorite. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, Dr. Roseanne, for Christ's sake. But, you know, the limiting beliefs in what we do come from a lot of things. And so we are the role model, not in what we say, and what we do for our children. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have to take care of ourselves. We have to be kind to ourselves. We have to be good managers of stress. We have to have resilience because that is how we share our calm. That is how we get the nervous system, the brain to regulate. And it's, it's a, I, you know, use this as a, you know, a, a battle cry for parents, particularly women to really learn to get it together and take care of themselves and prioritize their own mental health. And that stress management and calming the brain is something you have to do every day. It doesn't have to be massage every day, but it's got to be 10 minutes of dedicated time of powering your brain and body down, you know, gratitude practices, prayer, biofeedback, neurofeedback, uh, yoga. There's got to be a quietness to it. I'm just like, an intense spin class, but okay. Also quietness. <laughs> I do my, I get up at like between four and 5 a.m. and do cardio and stuff in the morning. And that's not my quiet time. That's not, you know, it's what I need to really get my day in. Plus that's the only damn time I can work out. 
that I consistently, I need a routine, but we have to make that part of our day. You know, where's my 10 minutes, you know, where is that time? And I say 10 minutes because we know through research, that's sort of the bare minimum, right? We can do that. And if you've got six kids, you can carve out 10 minutes. Okay. Just don't make it in the bathroom, go in the garage. So, (laughs) or tell your kids you're going to the bathroom because then they'll all go over there. They'll all line up around the door. 10 minutes will go by. Mm -hmm. There's so such a complexity. I, I also think we're overthinking mental health. I think that because we want to outsource, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't go to a therapist. I'm a licensed therapist. But what I'm saying is when you're driving up the one-way road, there are a lot of signs along the way. So we have to tend to that garden. We have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. We're taking care of their family. And it's not through things. It's through experiences. It's through joyful practices. It's through, in our house, a whole lot of laughs. And, you know, we parent with a lot of humor and sarcasm and, and being present as much as you can. Like, you know, when I'm doing work, I'm like, I'm doing this work. I'm going to finish it. And I turn off my devices. Yeah. You know, like you have to be there to connect. I 100% uh, agree with that piece. And that that actually just takes intention and and conscious effort. Like that is not, these devices are super powerful. Like if you are not intentional, but I turn it off or put it in the drawer or do the whatever, like everyone gets sucked into the, the It's dopamine. like an extension of your hand, Megan. You know what I mean? Now my workout pants now have the pocket for it. And I'm like, oh boy. You know what I mean? Right. So, you know, we have to do, we have to, learn to integrate these practices in just like we make time for email, you know, and in prioritizing it. And I do also think even though people think they address their issues, you're right. They, they take a pill because it's quick. It's easy. I also think our kids face different stressors than we do. Mm-hmm. You know, every generation has their own is- you know, issues and I'm not going to blame technology, but technology has an accessibility that is overstimulating our nervous system. Doesn't give people downtime. Like I had a ton of downtime as a teenager. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Like you could do stuff and hang out with your friends. Now it's like, oh, I don't think I can get there until two weeks from now. So we can't compare. We have to compare apples to apples and we're not. As I also talked about the expectations for straight A's. Like if you're not a straight A student, you're nothing. Even when parents say, well, I don't believe in that, the other families do. And it puts a lot of undue pressure on these kids today. It's a, it's a very multi-layered issue. The kids that do the best have inner resilience. They have self-love and confidence. And they know how to manage stress, like people, other kids doing stupid things around them. Or, you know, those kind of things. It's going to happen, you know, in a place where... Kids today, I mean, marijuana usage at a very high frequency, using it multiple times a day has become pretty standard. And it used to be like high level academic kids didn't smoke pot all the time. They smoke pot just as much as everybody else. We're all looking for ways to cope with stress. We just have to find the ways that are healthier, that also are things that people can use throughout their life. Absolutely. Because these are, these are transferable skills. Like someone asked me, they're like, where does your like state of resilience or perspective on stress come from? And I was like, oh, that was like built up when I was a kid. Like, and it was, it's getting in the ring. It's also getting in there. Even as adults, we have this, I I, I think we have a a challenge distinguishing moments that are uncomfortable and I should have boundaries and say no from moments that are driving growth in us as humans. I actually think part of the challenge is we don't have a very strong lens to understand and distinguish those two opportunities in our life. And so what we do is we just push all uncomfort goes behind the boundary of medication or alcohol or Netflix or pod or like whatever the case may be. Absolutely. And that is the truth because if you're not learning how to manage bits of uncomfortableness, you can't indistinguish. It all gets lumped together. And all you say is, I don't like how I feel here. Let me disconnect. Those are all disconnection things. And the healthiest people are grounded within their bodies. And we're all going to have stressors. There's just no way around it. But 
how we view and how we learn to get through it. You know, whenever, you know, some people, right, obviously I'm a therapist, but I'm very action oriented. So I'm not a therapist where you get to come in here and just complain about your problems. This is, well, here's the problem. What's the solution? Having a solution oriented mindset is important. We also have to honor those negative experiences. And sometimes we do really need to take some time to grieve, mourn, be upset, do that. You can't live there. And when you're really stuck in that place, that is when you should seek help from a licensed mental health provider um, and find new ways to manage. And that's really what I look at therapy as this way to gain those skills that take you to that next level in your hopefully awesome evolutionary mental health process, you know? What did the pandemic do to kids who were already in crisis? Because I know what it did to adults. Yeah. If you had poor coping skills before going into this pandemic, people fell apart. I mean, I can even tell you that, you know, I had somebody who was very close to me who was a therapist. I mean, I just couldn't believe what happened to this person. And they just fell apart. They were ran, ran, ran a little on the anxious side, but during that time, you know, you either said, Hey, this is stressful. Let me figure out ways to counter it. Or you kind of tumbled into the black hole of anxiety. You know, I think parents got to see how their kids were actually coping and managing the stress because they were home. So they would, they were saying, Oh my God, my kid can't pay attention. Or wow, they really have no idea on how to find, how to get into this thing and the teachers were helping or, you know, or they really don't have friends or they're poor at managing friendships. So they got a bird's eye view that they never had before, which I really commend the parents who were like, oh, we better address this in a really positive way instead of turning a blind eye. But I saw many, many people sink into a deep depression, you know, lots of anxiety. I had never seen so, so much just worry. And it really stemmed down to a lack of connection. We, we were missing people. I think that's totally valid. Like I still came to work every day with a small group of people, even though we weren't supposed to. It was like, what are they going to do? Arrest me? <laughs> you know, I, I need connection. I honor your self-authorization, <laughs> Dr. Rowe. It is on point. I'm not saying that we didn't sneak a couple of clients in. I'm not saying that, on, you know, but... We definitely need, you know, we need connection, right? And I think people got to see that. But it was, I think you probably saw that, Megan, too. You saw people really just, you know, some people thrived. And I I think that's incredible. But I think there was a sadness that came over people. And the loss of control is very triggering for people. We benefit from structure and routine. I was on TV, like, literally, practically three times a week talking about you know, what was happening to people's mental health. And, you know, the more that we feel a sense of control, we know this through research that you are more likely to be happy. So what can you do in your own life to give yourself control in a healthy way um, that isn't, isn't negative, isn't going to infringe on other people? There's so many ways to do that. The control piece is actually really key. It's interesting because I am I was watching my own evolution and reaction to the pandemic. And I think I had a, a delayed state of frustration because I had this unfair advantage walking in because I actually like, I had such a strong working knowledge of health and how to protect myself. So I was like, I'm good. Like I'm not succumbing to the anxiety around me and can make strong decisions for my family. But it was when decisions started to become imposed upon us that I was like, okay, now it, like I have to catch, I have to catch the spiral because I was like, you're like, you're literally stealing the control I've had this whole time, I was, re- I was really aware of that, uh, of that transition and how it affected us. That was triggering for a lot of people, Megan, Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, and certain places, you know, you really had no choice. Like it, you know, you're not going to get out of your country. And my closest friend, Shelly in, in, um, New Zealand is just able to get out of the country now, two and a half years later. It's challenging. It's really challenging, especially when we lived a life to this point where we were able to experience a level of, of freedom. I'm going to say took for granted in a very real way, not in an unintentional way that that was just a factor of how we got to live our lives. And so you remove that and you're like, but I'm the good kid being put in my room. It's, it is, it's, it's triggering on a lot of levels. And, and not only were you put in your room, Megan, you were working from home. You're the teacher. 
and you're a sous chef, right? And your cleaning lady wasn't coming over. Mine still came over. And it was just... Yeah. Yeah. You need all, you need all the people. Yeah. But it, it was, it was holding space for all of the responsibility. And it was more than, uh, more than the system. Our system certainly was set up to set up the handle. Absolutely. And some people would, you know, I saw more people walking and getting into nature and that was pretty exciting that people use as an opportunity to do some things that, you know, were on their wish list and made time for it. And they fared the best. Yeah. Yeah. It's just actually leaning into the quiet. So we're in acknowledgement that we have we have uh, a mental health crisis in in adults. It's a global. It's global. Fourteen percent of people ten to uh, eighteen across the globe have a mental health problem. That's across that. That's the globe. I mean, the United States is very very high. Like the numbers are startling that are coming out. And I think it's really important to acknowledge because I have this, I have this obsession and bias. I assume everyone tries to opt themselves out of the conversation. So if we're talking about mental health, they're like, well, my child is not suicidal and my child is not this. And they're doing well, like you mentioned, they're doing well in school. Therefore, I think we're good for now. Uh, So you guys carry on talking about this thing and uh, I'll wait till it bubbles to the surface. We have been like well entrenched and trained by our society to wait for crisis before we take uh, before we take action. And and here's where I want to go with this. And I know it's something that we are both really passionate about. What do we need to do as the adults in the room as the most authorized layer of society and with access to the most number of tools? What do we need to do today? All of us, I don't think anyone's immune from this conversation. So we can start to shift the trajectory of mental health for our kids and our grandkids and the children are who are not even like in the purview at this point. Yeah, well, you know, I talk about generational mental wealth, right? So we're all worried about leaving our kids money. But, you know, as we saw with Johnny Depp in Amber, his right, we got to see I'm so glad you found a way to include them in the conversation. Right. It didn't matter how much money you have. It just allowed the mental health to really go to a whole other level. Right. So our gift is to give our kids that inner grace, that inner balance, that self-regulation that um, not only even for themselves, I mean, again, that future generation, but like, you know, you attract the right people. Everyone always is like, God, you married such a great guy. My husband would be like, yes, she did. Um, You know, I married my college sweetheart. This, this, uh, we've been together just over 30 years and, uh, I keep, I we're like buds. I, it's disgusting how much I adore him and really, truly how well we are partners. And you never think your kid's going to have difficulties. And, you know, I have one kid with pans, another kid who's, who's easy, but still has dyslexia and now recently diagnosed with scoliosis. But we're team Hodge. We're getting to it. We need partners in life. And how did that happen? Right. Well, I, I think there's a lot of things, but also I am a secure person. So I attracted a secure person. And we want our kids to have these beautiful lives. We don't think about the partners they're going to be with. We think about are they going to be financially secure? But you want them to be emotionally secure. So it all starts at home. And it starts with conversations about, oh wow, that was really stressful. But you, you know, how did you get through it? Like, ooh, you know, even my little guy is like, he doesn't want to be a therapist. He wants to get his PhD in engineering, according to his his autobiography that he just wrote in fifth grade. Um, But (laughs) I was like, you do whatever you want, John Carlo. So the first day back from the pandemic, he looked anxious and he was, you know, what does that look like? You know, first of all, he doesn't walk, he skips. He's just this sunny kind of kid. he was kind of wringing his hands, like classic what you think of. And he, and he said, Mommy, I'm really worried about going back to school. I said, well, where do you feel the worry? And he said, I feel it all over. And I was like, okay. And I was like, do you have an idea why that worry is happening? And he said, I'm worried the kids aren't going to wear their masks because they're a bunch of new kids. And I said, okay, is it your responsibility to tell those kids? No. It's like, well, how can you manage that? And he was like, well, I could tell the teacher. I was like, okay. So then I was like, let's lean into this anxiety. 
Let's, let's feel it. Let's, what can you do to lower it? And he said, I can breathe through it. And I was like, okay. And then I was like, we did a little number check. That didn't happen one time. We've been doing that. So have conversations, get them to check in with their body sensations. This is really important. And I use a scale of zero to five, you know, and I'm like, how, how uncomfortable are you? Where, and where do you feel it? Have them lean into it. Super important. And then as we talked about, you have to be a role model of stress. So that does not mean you hide your stress, people. In fact, I have very open conversations. So something very stressful happened to me this week and I came home and my teenager, I was like, I had a rough day. And he was like, cause I don't normally say that. And he was like, what happened? And I told him and he was like, Oh, and then I, I talked to him about, it. I told him how I was managing it and he is internalizing it, right? They need to understand like, Oh, when mommy got the speeding ticket and you're in the back seat, you know, we laughed about it. You know, we talked about it. You know, I said to my little guy, were you worried? He goes, Oh, I'm actually embarrassed if anybody saw you get pulled over for speeding. And it was really good. So I give you these real world examples because you want to have ongoing conversations. You want to talk to them about stressors. You know, my parents taught me about a lot of things, stress, business, whatever. There was no conversation that was off the table. And with mental health, just like you talked about, we try to pull it away. You know, your uncle, your uncle Jeff is, is an alcoholic and you, you don't talk about it. Well, let's talk about Uncle Jeff's alcoholism. Why is he an alcoholic? Like, why do you think he is? How can we support him? What should he be doing instead of drinking? You don't have to hide it. They're aware Uncle Jeff is an alcoholic. Either that or they think he's really strange because he's, you know, tripping on his words or doing inappropriate things. Why don't you have real conversations? Everyone doesn't want to talk about mental health like they would a kid having cancer. So role model stress management, role model, how you are mitigating stress, like prayer, breath work, yoga, do family things together, keep mental health a priority in your family and, and really honor it, you know, and that's how you build good skills. Yeah. And it starts with us. It starts with us dealing with our own stuff and, and learning those, learning those tools. And, you know, we said it before, but I'm like, like wine every night while you're making dinner is not is not a mental health coping mechanism. It can be lovely, but that you you have to be just so clear around how you are leveraging different things in your life to avoid having to lean into these these pieces. And you know, I as a clinician, the one like one thing I've taken away from my my time working with patients is we can't make assumptions about people. We can't assume no. they had it easy. I have we we dismiss our own our own pain by comparing to other people. I could never have what she had because she had it so easy growing up, and I had all this shit. And so, like, I'm not unpacking my shit. Like, I'll just do the best I can. You know, I can say, and I know you can say the same thing. Having spoken to people of all socioeconomic backgrounds of all races people have a lot of stuff that you don't see like people with a ton of money had horrendous tragedy in their in their youth and so this idea that we just kind of are like well i have different circumstances therefore i'm not no like the, the the real i think what we're both talking about here is the real opportunity is for all of us to acknowledge that all of us have garbage that, that we could integrate differently, that will make us better leaders in our families and in our communities and in our, in our businesses. And I, I just want to call that out because I don't want anyone to opt themselves out of this exercise. And that's really what it's going to take. And we all have stuff. It's what you do with it. I yeah. say it all the time. And um, I have the privilege of helping people every day who prioritize our mental health. It's like truly an honor. And I am amazed sometimes how much stuff people have. And they're like, I don't want to deal with this stuff. You know, one time I had an 81 year old come to me with some of the most horrific trauma, physical, sexual abuse, right out of infancy, read a book called The Body Keep Score. It's about trauma and said, I want to come and do neurofeedback with you at 81 years old. God bless her. And um, she said it was the first time she ever could experience joy in her life. Is that amazing? Like 
truly like goosebumps. So whatever it is, there is a way to deal with it. And it may be uncomfortable, but you can get to the other side of it and you can learn how to manage that. And that's, that's how we create that generational mental wealth. And it's an ongoing process. But every day, including Dr. Rowe and Megan, we are constantly finding ways to bring balance and counter stress. True? A hundred percent. hundred percent. So I'm, I'm walking the walk. This isn't yeah. just talk. You know, it's important. It's for the, sure. It's totally the only way. I feel like this is a perfect place to transition the interview into something I call our impact ingredients. And while we could talk all day on these, the intention is that they're like, they're rapid fire uh, pieces. So we can just get a sense of like, what happens in your, I, like, I can only imagine what happens in your, I feel like you would be an excellent reality TV show. Oh, I would be. Yeah. Right. Okay. What is a weird skill or talent that you possess that people might not know about? I have so many weird skills. How did I know this would be a long? Um, I don't. I don't. What's a? What's a? I mean, I. I mean, I'm a like a five star chef. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only other career I actually considered. I asked my daughter the other day for her birthday, "What meal can mommy make you that is your favorite?" She's like, "Can you take me to Taroni's for their bolognese?" And I was like, "Okay, that's yeah. Okay, good. yeah." And I love to cook because it makes people so happy. And my friends, wherever I go, if I go to their house or coming over, I cook and I love it. It's my Zen. Amazing. Where do you, where do you cultivate courage from when you know you're going to need it? Where do you dig deep to find it? When you need it? Oh, I so easy answer. I link up to source and I get a lot of guidance from above and I have such clarity about everything that I do, including this mission, because I, this is divine intervention. I get a divine download and I just do it. What's a non-negotiable for you in your life? If it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. As an entrepreneur, were you born with it or did you learn to become an entrepreneur? I learned from my parents who I'm a second generation entrepreneur. And the last question for you, what do you want your legacy of impact to be? I want to change the way we view and treat kids' mental health. I mean, that's my mission. And I talk about it all the time. I want this to be, I want this to be a disruption in the conversation and really get people away from pharma and teach parents they are the power. They should never give it up. And this is all things that they can do. They just have to start small and integrate the changes into their lives. Dr. Rowe, up to so many awesome things. Always so fun to follow along with. Where can we send people so they stay up to date on your journey and your work and can access some resources? Well, you can find me, Dr. Roseanne, everywhere. And that's D-R-R-O-S-E-A-N-N.com, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Facebook is Dr. Roseanne Kapana Hodge, but I, um, you know, you can go to my website. I have a lot of blogs, a lot of good information so that you can start today making changes. Amazing. All of this can be found on our website, meganwalker.com forward slash podcast. Dr. Rowe, thanks for being here. Oh, I'm sending you a big hug. Thank you for having this conversation. It was awesome. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.